You can go in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30 is actually where we'll start. We'll be in Genesis 37 the most, most of the time, but Genesis 30 is where we will begin. In 1631, 28-year-old Roger Williams, you probably have heard that name before, maybe way back in history class in grade school, Roger Williams, 28 years old, arrived on the coast of Massachusetts with his wife, his library, and his education. He soon became a teacher in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Williams was an ardent supporter of religious freedom and separation from the Church of England, and his opinions got him into trouble with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he was actually banished from Massachusetts in 1636, only five years after he arrived. So after being banished from Massachusetts, he goes and, uh, and lives with some of the natives that he had befriended earlier on. And after purchasing some land from them, he begins a small colony as a haven for true religious freedom. And he called his colony Providence. Providence. Why? In thanks to God for his providential care during his banishment from Massachusetts. Williams's colony of Providence is now the city of Providence, Rhode Island, which is a city of a million people. Providence, the word providence. You know, that's one we throw around a lot in, in spiritual or religious circles, right? The providence of God, providence. But what is providence? What does it mean? How do we see it in our lives? Probably one of the best examples in all of scripture and maybe all of history of the providence of God is the life of Joseph, the life of Joseph. And so for the next uh, four Sunday evenings, when we are in here, we're going to explore the life of Joseph and see God's providence, his power, and his presence in Joseph's story. I told you to go to Genesis 30, and I led you astray. Go to Genesis 50, actually. We're going to start at the end of the story to talk here about the providence of God in Joseph's life, we start with the end. So spoiler alert for those of you that don't like that person sitting next to you when you're watching the movie that tells you how it's going to end up, all right? You can plug your ears for a little bit if you don't know the story of Joseph, but I'm pretty sure you all do. Joseph had been through everything that he had been. We're going to see you know, how he's in the pit. He's with Potiphar. He's, he's uh, in prison. And then he ends up in the palace with, uh, with power there in Egypt. And after all that happens, his father Jacob has died. His brothers and people now live in Egypt. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph makes this summary statement. Like I said, spoiler alert, but... This gives us the framework within which to see everything else about the life of Joseph. Joseph says to his brothers, let's look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph says to his brothers, the very ones who, who wanted to kill him, and by the mercy of God did not, he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That may be one of the best descriptions of the providence of God. See, his brothers meant to do harm to Joseph. They meant to harm him, to hurt him, to cut him down. 
yet God meant for what they did to help Joseph. Isn't that incredible? That's the power of God in Joseph's life, that what his brothers meant to do to harm him, God meant to do to help him. Now, I want you to notice something here, because we often misquote this verse. We often misquote this and say that, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God turned it into good. No, no, no. It says God what? He meant it for good. It doesn't say God turned it into good. It's not saying that everybody did these things, then God had to figure out a way to come up behind them and clean it all up and make it something good. It doesn't say that at all. What they did was what they wanted to do, and it was God's plan all along. God meant for these things to happen. See, God never follows behind us and picks up all the pieces. God is always out in front of us. Psalm 105, the psalmist talks about this very story. In just a couple verses, it says, Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. It's God's doing. He broke the whole staff of bread. Now listen to this phrase. It says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who is sold for a servant. So that psalm is telling us God is not you know, running behind everybody picking up pieces. He's out in front. He sent Joseph to Egypt through the works of his brothers in order then to save his people. That was God's plan all along. It's not as if things happen outside of God's control and then God has the great ability to then take those things and turn those things that are outside of his control into his control and turn them into good. No, what happened with his brothers was meant by God for good. It was always the plan. That's the providence of God. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of human events. Do you remember it's been a year or so now when we studied the book of Esther together and we saw how God was just arranging things over and over and over again in the life of Esther. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of human events. And we're gonna see that throughout Joseph's story. We see God's providence, yet not just his providence, we see his presence and we see his power because not only does God have a plan, that's one thing, We all have plans, right? We maybe have plans for tomorrow. Do we have the power to carry out those plans? Depends, right? Depends what happens. We may or may not carry out. Well, see, God has a plan and he has the power to accomplish his plan. And God's providential plans never lack his presence in them. So we see God's providence, his power, and his presence. Now go to Genesis chapter 30, where we see Joseph arrive on the scene here. Genesis chapter 30, Joseph is born as the son of Jacob and Rachel. Chapter 30 of Genesis, verses 1 and 2. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Isn't that interesting, the same phrase Joseph used in Genesis 50? Who who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is a repeating theme here in Genesis. You see it in Sarah, you saw it in Rebekah, and we see it here now in Rachel. So Rachel has not had any children. She envies her sister Leah. She blames Jacob. Why does she envy Leah? Because Leah has been very fruitful. 
She has four uh, sons at this time. And then the re- some of these verses in chapter 30 describe a season of barrenness that Leah had. But then God reopens her womb. She has two more sons and a daughter. So Leah has had seven children by the end of this story. Well, as is custom, and we've seen this before in Genesis as well, verse 3, Rachel says, Here is my, my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Verse 7, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Dan and Naphtali actually come from Bilhah, Rachel's maid. Leah has done the same thing or does the same thing. Later on, you'll see this. Zilpah, her maid, is given to Jacob as well and bears two sons, Gad and Asher, through the handmaid. So you have children from Leah, children from Leah's handmaid, children from Rachel's handmaid, but none yet from Rachel. Can you imagine the setup of this family? Can you imagine the strife? And what is this based from? What we talked about last time, the deception of Jacob, right? Where he was deceived by, he was a deceiver, and then he was deceived by his father-in-law into marrying Leah and Rachel, and it's catching up to him. He has two wives, he has two concubines or other wives, he has an assortment of children who are siblings and half-siblings. Can you imagine the jealousy? The competing for attention, the favoritism that would be there here in his family. You don't really have to imagine it too much, though, because guess what? It's right in the story. We're going to see it here in just, just a minute. Look at verse 22, skipping ahead a little bit. God remembers Rachel. God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Verse 23, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Interesting here. God opens her womb. She conceives. She bears Jacob a son. They name him Joseph. And Joseph means he shall add. So in giving birth to Joseph, Rachel is confident that God will give her another son as well. And he does exactly that. Jump ahead to Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verses 16 to 22. 35, 16 to 22. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Rachel, or God does add another son to Rachel, but under tragic circumstances, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. This is maybe one of the most unique families in history. Look at verse 22, and it gives us a summary, just so you kind of know who everyone is. Verse 22, the end of it, says, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. 
And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Uniquely assembled family. No? Very unique. We pick up Joseph's story in Genesis 37. Look at Genesis 37. Joseph is the second youngest of the sons. He's the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who has passed away. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old. You know, it's always helpful when they give us an age in Scripture. kind of gives us a marker there. 17 years old, he was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So here's uh, Joseph out with his brothers, which would be his half-brothers, right? Same father, different mother, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. He's out with them. He comes home, reports back to his father. I don't know, something doesn't tell us what they did, but something they did or didn't do that he knew wouldn't please his father, and so he basically tells on them. You can imagine that didn't sit well with his brothers, right? No one really likes a, a tattler do they? No. But then it gets even worse. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Why did Jacob love Joseph more than his brothers? Why was Joseph the favorite? One, I think, because did not Jacob's parents pattern that behavior for him? Remember Isaac and Rebekah? Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. His family was, de- Jacob's family here was definitely a mishmash of, of uh, you know, jealousy and angling for attention, uh, all the problems that come with that. Joseph is Jacob's uh, oldest son from his favorite wife, Rachel, who has died. So you can see several reasons why Joseph is the favorite. Now, maybe Jacob thought this was okay. Maybe Joseph reveled in it. It didn't sit too well with his brothers, verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Why did his brothers hate him? Well, verse 2 says he told on them. That's not going to help. Verse 3, he was preferred above them. The end of verse 3 tells us he got special treatment and favors that they didn't get, specifically here, a tunic of many colors. So Joseph here is caught between his father's favoritism and his brother's jealousy, not a place any of us would really want to be. And then he has dreams. It gets even worse. As if he's not caught between a rock and a hard place, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So here's Joseph caught between his brothers and his father. Not only does he have his dreams, but he tells them to his brothers and his father. And his brothers and his father, they pick up on it pretty quick. Did you notice their questions in verse 8, the brothers? They catch on, and then verse 10, uh, his father, they catch on to the significance of the dreams. The brothers say, shall you reign over us? Are you going to have dominion over us? And in verse 10, uh, Jacob says, do you actually think your brothers and mother and I are going to come and bow down to you? Now, it doesn't tell us their response to their, the answer to those questions, but their assumed response is probably what? <laughs> no way. That ain't going to happen. Who do you think you are? And here we see a glimpse of the providence of God. What is God doing here? That, that foreshadowing of what is to come. He's, he's giving Joseph a glimpse. Does Joseph know how that's going to work out? No. Do the brothers know what's going to happen? No. Nobody has a clue about this. But it is the providence of God. Our English word providence comes from two Latin words. Pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. So the word providence literally means to see beforehand. To see before it happens. God sees he knows, he ordains things before they happen. See, what Joseph's brothers and his father were scoffing at, what were they scoffing at? The fact that Joseph dreamed that at some point they would bow down to him. They were scoffing at what God has already lined up to happen. Isn't that incredible? They are scoffing, they are mocking at the fact at some point, we would bow down to you, and yet God in his providence to see beforehand has already lined these things up to happen. Now, there's another question here that we have to ask and answer, and that is, was Joseph right in sharing the dreams with his brothers? You ever think through that? It got him in some trouble, didn't it? Was, was, was he wrong to share the dreams with his brother? Was it boasting or maybe it was at 17-year-old immaturity. He didn't quite know what to say and what not to say. And, and, and scripture doesn't tell us this, doesn't tell us what's going through the mind of Joseph. You know, did he share these dreams as a, hey guys, this is what happened to me. You know, this is the dream I had. Like any of us would do, right? Not putting a whole lot of stock into the dream, but just thinking, hey, this is, this is what happened to me, just sharing it with you. Or did he share it with a little bit of a gleam in his eye? And kind of a one-up on his brothers. Hey, guess what? Guess what happened to me? You know, we don't get insight into the, the, the spirit or the thought process of Joseph. It just tells us here what he did. He may very well have been guilty of boasting or rubbing in their face. Or he may have just humbly told them, hey, this is what happened. I don't think it mattered at this point how he said it. The brothers, I think, were already to that point where it didn't matter what he said, they were going to hate him for it. Either way, we see Joseph's telling of the dream and the brother's response to it as a part of what? God's providence. 
the plan of God, that even in Joseph telling the dreams, God is working a plan much bigger than anyone has a clue about at this point. We get the benefit of seeing the story in hindsight, right? We already went to the end in Genesis 50, and now we go back and fill in the pieces. They're living this out. They have no idea what God is doing. No idea about what is going on. Well, the dreams here only increase the brothers' hatred of Joseph. Let me show you this. Verse 4, it says that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 5, it says they hated him even more. Verse 8, it says they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And verse 11 says they envied him. It looks here like the anger and resentment from his brothers is reaching a boiling point. As we've said a little bit here recently in the morning, the sun was going down on this wrath. The sun was setting on this wrath in his brothers, and it was reaching a point where all it needed was an opportunity to boil over and cause problems. That opportunity comes very soon, verse 12. Not told how much time passes, but I can't imagine it is too much. Then his brothers, verse 12, went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel, it's Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse 18. His brothers see him coming. When they saw him afar off... Even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Here's their chance, right? Away from dad, on their own. They conspire here, verse 20, to kill him and to throw him into some pit and say that some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams now. Oh, don't miss that phrase. What a view of the providence of God. By throwing him in the pit, the brothers are trying to destroy the dreams of Joseph. Yet God is accomplishing the dreams of Joseph by Joseph being thrown in the pit. Isn't that incredible? They say, what? we'll see what will become of his dreams. We'll see what's going to happen. Yeah, we'll see if we ever bow down to him while he's in this pit. And yet that's exactly what God is using to bring together the saving of all of Israel through Joseph in Egypt. It's incredible. What an incredible line here from his brothers, thinking they are ruining the dreams when actually God is going to use that very act to accomplish the dreams. Reuben hears about it, verse 21. He delivered him out of their hands. He said, let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. 
So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. It doesn't really tell us, it tells us that Reuben wanted to come back and try to save uh, Joseph. doesn't tell us why, maybe to get in good with his dad. I, I don't know. But he had a soft spot for Joseph somewhere, didn't think it was right for them to do what they were doing. And so he does spare his life by him stepping in. He spares his life. They throw him into the pit. And then it seems here for some reason or somehow Reuben goes away and the rest of the brothers come up with a plan. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob thought the story was over, didn't he? He thought that was the end. That was it. He thought he was dead. Verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So the brothers deceive their father into thinking he's been killed, a secret, a deception that they would keep for many, many years. And you know, after they sold him, for all they knew what, he, well, he was dead, he could be dead at least. They didn't have a clue where he was. And no idea how God was working behind the scenes. But yet the providence of God was at work. The wheels of the providence of God are always turning. Always turning. Let's talk about Joseph here a little bit. Joseph gets thrown into a pit by his brothers. What do you think is going through his mind? You know, maybe it's this, at first, you know, is this some cruel joke? Is this some sort of April Fool's Day thing? What's going on? Or maybe, hey, you know, someone eventually will come and save me. Does he know that they actually wanted to kill him and that throwing him in a pit was actually them being merciful? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. What's going through Joseph's mind when they sell him? Probably something like, I didn't, I didn't realize they hated me so much. I didn't realize it had come to this. I'll never see dad again. He goes from favorite son to chattel slavery. Favorite son status with special privileges to nothing more than something being sold for 20 shekels of silver, dragged behind a cart and carried off to be sold again. 
Where's Joseph's faith at this point? It's interesting here in the story, we're not told, we're not told, we're not given any insight into what's going through Joseph's mind, what he's thinking at this point. You know, was he just sitting in that pit quietly waiting for God's providence to play out? I'm sure God has this worked out somehow. Probably not. You know, in those types of situations, we always view God's providence best in hindsight, right? You've been there in your life. When you're in the pit, you're usually not sitting there saying, God will work this out. You're just trying to survive it, right? You're just trying to get through that moment. And then you get to the end and you look back, right, Tim, from your class this morning. When you look, you get to the end and you look back on it and you say, God has been faithful, God has been good, and then it gives you confidence for the future. But it's usually, it's hard. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's hard to have that mindset in the moment because within the hardship, we are just trying to survive that hardship. Go to chapter 39, verse two. This is a phrase that will be so important for Joseph going forward. Chapter 39, two, we're advancing in the story just slightly. Joseph has been taken down to Egypt, verse 31. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Now this is said when he goes into Potiphar's house, but was it only true when he went into Potiphar's house? Or was it also true when he was in the pit? Was it also true when he was sold onto that caravan? And here we see a recurring theme in Joseph's life. The Lord was with Joseph. You know, it's true in our lives. You've been there as I have. God does not often remove the pit, but he goes down into the pit with us, right? He doesn't often cover the pit up so we don't get thrown into it or step into it or fall into it but he always goes down into the pit with us. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 14, God said this to Moses. He says, my presence will go with you. What was Moses doing? He was leading Israel, a bunch of people. Was that somewhat of a pit for Moses? I think it was. And what did God tell him? My presence will go with you. Where God's providence exists, so does his presence. Where God's providence exists here for Joseph, so does his presence. Hebrews 13, verses five and six, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Have you found that to be true in your life? I hope so. And I hope that in the ways it has been true, as as we'll see in Joseph, that it then gives you confidence for what will be true in the future. It does not matter what happens to us. As the song we've sung this month says, our God will go before us and will guide us by his presence. What confidence this promise is, we will never walk alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, no matter what happens,